Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we, we just want to thank you again for the many blessings that you have given to us. And Lord, we do want to thank you that you do speak to us through your word and pray this morning that you would help us to do exactly that to hear. But just because your word is, is preached doesn't mean that we always receive it. Doesn't mean we always hear it. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to prepare the, the soil of our hearts to truly hear, God, the things that, that you have to say. We pray for you to apply these things to our hearts and our lives. That, God, we would walk in holiness and love and to serve you and, and to love one another. We thank you, O oh God, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, you don't need me to stand up here and tell you that there is a lack of peace in the world today. I mean, all you have to do is read the news or watch it on TV or whatever, and you can see that there's a lot of turmoil in the world in which we live. And, and it's not only out there that we see turmoil, but it's at work, it's at school, it's in our neighborhoods, it's even in our homes, right? I mean, how many of you had a very peaceful morning getting ready for coming to church this morning? You know, probably, maybe you did, but oftentimes Sundays can be the most hectic times, it seems like. You know, we know that as people that we lack peace. And so that leads us to the question of how do we get peace in our lives? If we know that we need peace and, and we know that we don't experience it, then how do we get true peace? Well, the answer that you may get depends on who you talk to, in one sense. If you talk to someone who comes from sort of a secular humanism type of approach, they would say that, well, people are basically good, and so all that you really need is to be enlightened in your understanding. You need to be educated. You need to have more knowledge. And if you have more knowledge, then you're just going to come to the right conclusion, and that's going to tear down these walls, and we're going to have peace. Uh, a cosmic humanist, on the other hand, would say, well, we are gods, and so we basically need to find that inner peace that's inside of us. That peace is there. You might see that in things like yoga, maybe some Eastern mysticism. Uh, you, you see it definitely in a lot of the things you see coming out of Hollywood. A lot of actors and actresses will... Uh, believe these kind of things. And kids, have you ever heard the phrase, the force be with you? Right? That's cosmic humanism, okay? At its best, okay? Um, or if you talk to someone who's a postmodernist, they would say that there's no meta narrative, or if I can put this in language, you might understand there's no absolute truth to tell you what's right and what's wrong. So we need to affirm one another's individual beliefs that we get along as you affirm the different communities have different narratives, different values, and different traditions. So we just need to accept and affirm each other uh, where we're coming from, and then we'll all get along. It's, it's sort of summarized in that bumper sticker that you've seen on the back of cars that says, Coexist. And it has all the letters or different religious symbols and stuff. That's the idea of postmodernism. Now, for probably for most of us, we've not thought that much about peace. We've not thought, 
you know, philosophically like that or, you know, what exactly it is that we're buying into. For a lot of us, we just have had a hard day. There's been conflict at work or at school or wherever, uh, maybe in our neighborhood or something, and we just want to veg, right? And so we might turn to things like entertainment. You know, we might just turn on the TV and just try to forget about life. You know, we may pick up a good book uh, and read it. Others may uh, seek to surround themselves with materialistic type things. And in that materialism to create sort of this world of comfort and isolation that would help us in terms of that, that peace that our hearts hunger for. Others seek it in relationships. And they might go from relationship to relationship to relationship. But they're seeking for that sense of peace. Others go the opposite direction and they sort of want to be isolated. And so they really there are no meaningful relationships in their life because then they won't be they won't be hurt. Others now don't laugh at this, but I think that some people just sleep. I know people that have just would just spend a lot of hours a day just sort of escaping through sleep. Others might become activists or pursuing a cause in the world to bring about some kind of change. But this morning, what I want us to do is to look at what God says about how we have true and lasting peace. Because he is the one that's created us. He is the one that has made us. And I want us to see the first thing is, is that we need peace. Okay, that, that's what Paul shares with us today. If you, if you look at verses 14 through 18, which is the text that we're looking at today, you'll see that word peace used over and over and over and over. And if not the word, even concepts. Paul's talking about bringing people together. He speaks of those who once were far away from God and they've been brought near to him. Everything in this passage is about what happens when we have peace. But what's interesting is, is as you look at verse 14, Paul presumes that we don't have peace. And, and notice how he starts this verse. He says, for he, that is Christ himself, is our peace. Now, Paul uses that little word for, which causes us to look back to what came beforehand. And if you look back at the beginning of verse 2, you see in verses 1 through 3 that we were separated from God before we came to faith in Him. And, and we saw last week in verses 11 through 13, and therefore we were separated from others. We were separated from God's people. And so as we think about being separated from God, Paul tells us that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins in verse 1. That we were following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan or the devil, in verse 2. Uh, in verse 3, we see that we're driven by our passions and, and our desires. And so oftentimes before we know Christ, before we know God, when we're sort of living life with, we're the captain of our own destiny, we feel like we're so in control. But what we don't realize is, is that we're really sort of a slave. We're a slave to our passions and our desires. Those things that we want are sort of driving us and we don't even know it. We don't even realize that we're being led and that we're following Satan in his ways. And so there's no true and lasting peace in our lives. And the reason peace eludes us is, is that we were living a lifestyle apart from God. We were living our lives following the ways of the world. And, and the problem is is that the world is not what God created it to be. Sin was not part of God's creation when he made the world. So sin, death, illness 
are not natural to God's creation. So the world's way of doing things, how the world functions, its values, etc., are done in such a way that excludes God and really exalts man's accomplishments, sort of gets things backwards and upside down. And so we see even in God's creation, not, not talking about humanity, but just even looking at the creation as a whole, it groans under the effects of sin. We see in Romans 8, verse 22 and following, where there's tornadoes, there's hurricanes, even the creation in which we live is all messed up and affected by sin. And so all around us, brothers and sisters, we see pain, we see injustice, we see heartache, and all their and and the whole time that we're experiencing that, we just know innately that there's something wrong with this, that this is not how things ought to be. Kids ought not to be molested. Homeless people should not die alone in a dark alley. That well-to-do families should not be splitting up and their kids go into this downward spiral and they're so messed up because of all the things that have gone on in their homes. You see, it's because of sin that these things happen and the world is not what God created it to be. So sin separates us from God. And if you look back at the beginning of the Bible, back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see how God created the world and how it was supposed to function. And in the Garden of Eden, where God made and placed the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, there was peace. There was harmony. Adam and Eve not only got along, Adam and Eve enjoyed one another. And not only enjoyed one another, but they enjoyed fellowship with God. And not only were these kind of relationships in harmony and in peace, but also even between Adam and Eve and creation. You see, they didn't abuse the world in which God has created. They took care of it and they nurtured it by God's design and his command. Adam named the creatures, uh, each and every one of them. So there was that kind of good relationship between uh, humanity and, and the animal world. Today, if a child was at the zoo and they fell into the lion's den, you bet the zookeeper would be quick on his feet to get that child out of there before he might be ripped to shreds. But that wasn't the way it was in the garden. At the beginning, all things were peaceful and harmonious and right. But then sin entered the picture. And if you look at sin, really at its core is, is pride. Now, we could define sin several ways by what it's not and by what it is. But the core of sin is that we want to be independent from God. You know, we want to be able to obey God when we want to obey God. And we want to obey God the way we want to obey God. And we want to shut out God when we want to do so. We want to ignore his perfect and wise uh, wisdom that's good and best. We always want to be in control. Actually, if you want to sort of summarize it, we want God's place. We want to be God. And we want to be in control of our lives. And yet, we're surprised that when we function that way, that it causes pain and suffering and misery in our lives and in the lives of others. Now, parents, have you ever uh, sought to teach your kids how to do something? It could be you know, cooking or mowing the lawn or whatever it is, 
and you're trying to walk them through, give them instructions because they've never done this before and you want to make sure they know how to do it. And the whole time you're talking, what are they doing? They're trying to get their hands in there and they're going, I know, I know, I know, I know. And you know that they don't know. And you just want to say, be quiet and listen to me. But oftentimes that's what we do with God. He tells us what it is that we are to do because he knows what's best and what's good. And oftentimes when a child says, I know, I know, I know, I know, and they're trying to do it themselves anyway, it rarely turns out well. And oftentimes that's the way it is with us when we don't acknowledge that God has the authority to speak to us and that we know better than the eternal, all-knowing, wise God. Brothers and sisters, how foolish of us. But how easy it is just to think, I can figure this out. And not go to God and his word and to hear what he has to say. And as if that's not bad enough that there is this, this need for peace with God, there's also this need of peace with others. So this attitude that we have towards God sort of spills over into our other relationships and the rest of our lives. Each of us has our own pride. Each of us wants their own kingdom, right? I mean, wouldn't you love it? Wouldn't it be a good day if you just spoke and people did exactly what you wanted. I mean, aren't you just tempted to say to people, I mean, don't you just want to say sometimes, listen, if you would just do what I say, we would get along a whole lot better. That's because we want our own kingdom where everybody would just listen to us and do what we have to say. The problem is, is that everybody else has that same attitude. And can you imagine the conflict that causes when we all want our own way? You see, they want you to bow down to them just as much as you want them to bow down to you. And so it's inevitable that as we experience pride and that sin dwells, wells up within us, that there's going to be conflict, right? So, you know, because sin is sort of that me first mentality. All we need to do is to understand, to understand this is even to look at our own households. I mean, where would you expect greater harmony and peace than in your family, right? I mean, we all have a common goal. We have common values. We're living together. We're sort of traveling down the same path. The family is sort of a small group that should be harmonious and peaceful. And yet, is it? We see conflict everywhere in our households between husbands and wives between parents and children, between siblings, because of sin. Now, you could be sitting here and saying, Rick, I don't see that. I don't see that. I think I'm a pretty good person. And, and I understand that. And Jesus addressed that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. And he said, you know, it's so easy for me to see the, the faults and the sins of your life. You know, I can see the speck of dust in your eye, like this little piece of dust. I can see that in your eye. And, and as a matter of fact, he said, but the problem is that I can't help you with that because I have logs in my own eyes. Now, kids, imagine this, that I came to church one day and while I'm, while I'm standing here in church and I'm preaching, there's these two two by fours, one two by four sticking out of this eye and the other two by four sticking out of this eye. And I walk up and I say, here, let me help you with the speck of dust in your eye. You know, would that be easy to do? No, Jesus said, first of all, Take the two by four, take the log out of your own eye, see your own sin and recognize it for what it is before you can help somebody else deal with their sin. You see, we can be so blind and think that we can see so clearly when in reality we can't.
but unfortunately, without understanding God as he is in all his holiness and glory and righteousness, we will never see ourselves as we are steeped in sin and pride. And that's why the world doesn't see its sin. Uh, because the world works so hard to do away with God. They either try to, you know, they take a naturalistic worldview which says everything that's real is only things that you can experience with your senses. And so since God is a spirit, he doesn't exist. And they just try to write him out of the picture. Or they'll read, try to redefine who he is, viewing him differently than what his character truly is. And the world wants to solve that problem of peace everywhere else but with God and with sin. And so the world doesn't understand that the root of our lack of peace is what? It's sin. And so we have a real need for sin, but we also need to understand, Paul tells us, that it is Christ who brings us that peace. If you look at the, uh, uh, if, if the root of the lack of peace is sin, then the only way we can find peace is in the one who destroys sin. Christ is the one who brings our peace. Look at verse 14. He said, For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace. There is only one way to experience true and lasting peace, and that is through Jesus Christ. Now that very much flies in the face of pluralism and postmodernism that says that everybody gets to decide how they're going to have peace. There, there are not many solutions to the problem of peace. There's only one. And that solution is found outside of ourselves. It's not within ourselves. It's not even within our ability. So we can't bring about peace in our own lives no matter how hard we try. Do you hear that? No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, no matter how you structure your life, no matter what processes you put in place, you cannot make there be peace. Besides, if if the solution was within our power or our ability, shouldn't the world be becoming a better place? But Paul looks out at the congregation there at Ephesus where he thinks back over the congregation and he says, you guys, as a group of Jews and Gentiles that are worshiping God together, you are an example. He said, you are a people who should be at war with each other. You know, I mentioned last week sort of the attitude of Jews and Gentiles. Jews being God's people, Jews, Gentiles being everybody else in the world. And the Jews and the Gentiles despised each other greatly. The Jews felt that the only reason God created the Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell. Okay, just to help you give an idea of the mentality that they had towards them. And uh, But Paul says in verse 14 that Christ is our peace who has made us both one, the Jews and the Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now last week I mentioned about the temple. And as you think about the temple, there was this tall building in the middle of this temple, which was the Holy of Holies. And that's where God dwelt. And there was a curtain that was like thick, okay, inches thick that hung in front of the Holy of Holies to keep people out. So they didn't wander in and be struck dead by God. And, and they weren't, the people weren't allowed, the priests weren't even allowed to go into the Holy of Holies uh, 
except once a year, and the high priest could go in, but he couldn't go in on his own merit. He had to offer a sacrifice and be covered with the blood so that he could walk into the Holy of Holies and minister before the Lord. And then so outside of the Holy Holies was another court or area where the priests would minister before the Lord. And then outside of that was another area called the court of men where the men were. And then outside of that was the court of women where the women were. And then outside of that, and I don't remember the exact number of the stairs, but I think it was like, four, you had to go down like 14 stairs. And then there was this wall that was like four foot high and I think like five feet thick. But anyway, this, this really substantial wall. And then beyond that wall was like another set of steps that went down. And then there was the area where the Gentiles were. Okay, and then on this, there's been evidence uh, from archaeology to show that there were signs that were on the wall uh, warning the Gentiles, do not come into the area where the Jews are upon pain of death. You will die if you go there. That's the kind of separation that you had between Gentiles and Jews. And, and just to, to help you to understand, if you look at Acts 21... Uh, beginning with verse 27, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he's in Jerusalem and he's hanging out with some Greeks, which would have been Gentiles. And, and then later on, Paul goes to the temple and we read this, that there were some Jews from Asia and seeing Paul in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has, been, and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, Paul had not. But the mere rumor that Paul had taken this Greek man past the wall and started, started a riot where they sought to kill Paul. Now, could you imagine that kind of hatred? But that's the kind of hatred that you saw between the Jews and the Greeks. And what Paul is saying here, but as I look at you as a church, he said, you are an example of how Jesus Christ has broken down that wall. There's no more a wall that says Greeks, you can't come in or Gentiles, you can't come in. You know, that you all can come in, that you can worship side by side because Jesus has broken this wall of hostility down. And there's now no more us and them, but now it's we. And so Paul says in verse 14 that he broke down that wall through his flesh. Now that language actually is very violent. Okay, broke down that flesh. Jesus has broken down the barriers and done away with it. And he did that in his flesh. He did that as he died upon the cross to bring peace where there once were walls of hostility. That Jesus Christ died to break down the walls in our hearts against other people. And he does that for a purpose because he's, he does so to bring his people together. Jesus brings unity uh, to a people who were very, very, very different. And Paul goes on to say then that the Old Testament ceremonial law with its commandments were fulfilled in Christ and no longer necessary because Christ in his death created one new man out of the two through his death and resurrection. So, so God 
didn't uh, save the Gentiles by making them first become Jewish, or he didn't save the Jews by telling them that they had to first of all become like the other nations. Instead, Jesus Christ died upon the cross that both Jews and Greeks might be saved the same way and to become a new creation, a third man, to become Christians, to become the church. You know, sometimes I hear Christians mistakenly think that if they become more Jewish in their practices, maybe they keep the dietary laws or, or something like that, that they are, they are more uh, faithful to New Testament Christianity. That couldn't be farther from the truth. That Jesus Christ saved us through him. So instead, all are welcome to the church through faith in Jesus Christ, who died to save them. This is how Paul puts it in Colossians 3.11. He goes, here... There is no, not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And that's how we find peace. Not by glossing over the differences that we have in our church or, or by trying to make cookie cutter Christians where everybody that comes to Kirk of the Plains is going to look exactly the same and we're going to dress the same and we're going to do everything alike, but by seeing who we are in Jesus Christ. And this makes the church sort of unique in, in human history. It's not as if we don't have our differences as the church, right? I mean, you can look at the differences between denominations, but even look at our congregation. We're not a huge church, but there are differences. We have people from different countries. We have people that speak different languages. We have people who have different hobbies. We have people who have different marital statuses. We have people who raise their families differently. We have people who live in different communities. We don't pretend that the differences don't exist, but we must understand that it is our unity in Christ that matters above everything else. And that's not only true here, but it's interesting how you can go all the way around the world and you can have that unity with people you've never met. I remember when my son and I went to Bangladesh and we were worshiping with Christians there and I was preaching at their Sunday uh, afternoon uh, worship service and uh, I was doing that through a translator because I didn't know their language. And, and not only that, but as they sang the songs, I didn't know the song, I didn't know the words of the songs, but I knew the songs because I knew the tunes. And so I could sort of sing under my breath in English uh, these words of praise to God. So we could be together worshiping the Lord. Even though our languages were different, our cultures, our traditions were very different. I'm not used to taking my shoes off before I go into worship. But I had to do that there. And afterwards, I had such a bond of fellowship with believers. I was either talking to them, and, and they have very broken English, or we were talking through an interpreter. But there was like a bond that was there because they were my brothers and my sisters in Christ. And so all the differences we had paled in comparison to the commonality that we had in Christ Jesus as our peacemaker. He is the one who unites his people. But he also unites us or reconciles us to God. In verse 16, he said, And, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus reconciles us to God. And Jesus can do this because he solves the problem of sin in our lives. As we saw earlier, sin is the root cause of our separation from God. And, and so how can we have true and lasting peace? We can have it only with each other if we, first of all, have peace with God. 
So the, the second effect of abolishing the law is that it reconciles us to God. Not only is the ceremonial law done away with in Christ, but the law as a means of salvation is done away with as well. I'm not able to say that I'm better than you. I cannot say that I'm a better person than you and I can look down upon you for some reason because the only reason I have a right standing with God is because of what Jesus Christ has done, not because of what I have done. You know, I think of what Paul Tripp said in his book on marriage, What Do You Expect? And he talks about those marriages, which he said are oftentimes far and few between, where husband and wife seem to get along really well. He says, as a matter of fact, people look from the outside and look at their marriage and think, man, these guys get along. This is just not right. You know, they just get along too well. Uh, now, the husband and wife would see it differently. They would see the conflicts that they have. But he goes, do you know why they do so well? He said, usually when I look into those homes and I dig a little bit deeper, I see that there is a real sense of understanding that the husband and wife understands that they are sinners that are saved by grace. And they are constantly in the habit of asking God for forgiveness for their sins and praying that God would help them to walk in holiness. And because they are used to doing that with their God, they then are very habitual in doing that with each other as husband and wife. And so it's not that there's not conflict, it's just that the conflicts are resolved in a good and a godly way, and they're resolved in a timely manner, and there is much humility in that home. And that's what, that what God does uh, for us. And so we are brought together in one body, the church, and Paul reminds us that we were hostile to God, that we were his enemies, as he says that he kills that hostility. Now, I think when we think of us as being enemies of God, sometimes we might uh, think that we're treating the way that, that uh, maybe that people would treat rival cliques in a high school or something. You know, we don't go out of our way to help them or we may not say nice things about them. You know, we're sort of at odds with one another. But that's not the idea that he has here. This idea of hostility is the idea of an enemy sort of swooping down on a village and destroying everything and murdering and killing and pillaging everything within that village. It is a hostility that is there that's long-lasting. And that's the hostility that we had towards God. Like I said before, we don't always see that in our lives. Sometimes we can think, well, I'm a pretty good person. But we really don't understand how much of our lives is, is really driven by our own desires and what we want and not for the glory of God. And so therefore we are being very hostile. But you see here that Jesus killed that hostility that we had towards God so that it could be gone. Jesus doesn't wean us off this hostility. He doesn't try to convince us to be nicer. He kills it! And he makes peace instantly. Jesus reconciles us to God. And the only way he can do that is through the cross of Jesus Christ, where Christ died to take the penalty of our sin. And as he died on that cross and then was buried, and then he rose again from the dead, he rose to give us new natures to once where we were hostile to God, we now have become children of God. And we love God. And where we were selfish and driven by our own desires and passions, we now have the love of God in our hearts to love other people. Now, does that mean that we can't be tempted to still be selfish? Oh, no, we can still be tempted to be that way. But our overall nature has changed so that we love other people. That hostility is gone. And so 
as we as we look at that, we see that Christ uh, it not only is our our peace, uh, or excuse me, that uh, Christ not only brings us peace, but He is our peace, and and we see that uh, in verses 17 and 18, Paul is clear that Jesus brings to God, brings us to God, and breaks down the walls of hostility. But this reconciliation would mean nothing if no one told us about it. If we didn't have anybody preach us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The world is constantly looking for peace in all the wrong places. But it's only through the faith in Jesus Christ alone that we have peace. Now, if that's true, then we need to tell everyone, don't we? I mean, God has made us his ambassadors. He has told us to go and make disciples of all nations. So we need to always be ready to bring the message of peace, that Jesus Christ is peace. Did we not just go through the Christmas season? Did we not just read all the wonderful accounts of Christ coming to earth? And what did the angels say to the shepherds when they appeared that night? In Luke 2.14, they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. And Isaiah describes Jesus, the coming Messiah, as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the message that we are to take to the world that needs peace. But we also are to live in that peace as well. Christ is our peace, and that is our relationship with him. Jesus' peace has changed everything. Because we are reconciled to God, we now have a way to approach him. We have a relationship with God. And that's what he says in verse 18, For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus as our peace is not something simply for our past to allow us to say that we're now a Christian, we now have faith in God, and we just sort of leave that in the past. It actually is for our present, that we have that relationship with God, that we can commune with Him each and every day, that we can walk in that peace. If you are in Christ, then you must live as one who has peace with God. You must live as someone who is at peace with others if you are in Jesus Christ. So that's the definition of who we are. It's not an option. Kids, I want to talk to you a second. Okay? Do you sometimes feel like it's very natural for you to have conflict with your brothers and sisters? I mean, it's just your family, right? Kids fight, right? Yeah, that's sometimes how we repeat it. I want you to see here, Paul says, no, that's not right. Actually, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then peace rules your heart. Okay? It's not natural. Actually, when we walk past our brothers and sisters and we push them, or we take what they have, or we say an unkind word, those are actually things that have to do with our flesh. Those are things that have to do that come from Satan. Those are not things that are characteristic of a child of God. It is what Jesus has done to change us. And so kids, kids, are you hearing me? What God's plan for your family is that you have peace with your brothers and sisters. That you have that sense of Loving them. So Jesus has taken care of the hostility, that obviously being the opposite of peace, and he's broken down those walls. So my question for us this morning is, are you living in his peace? Are you at peace with God? Are you living at peace with others? 
Is there anyone that, that you need to be reconciled with? Maybe this morning was a hard morning before church and you're thinking, I can't wait till this is all over. I need to talk to my husband. I need to ask for forgiveness or I need to go back to my kids and I need to ask for forgiveness, whatever. Is there anyone whom you have wronged and you need to ask for forgiveness? You know, the world's definition of peace is the absence of conflict, but that's not God's idea of peace. God is not content merely with the absence of outward conflict towards others. God is not content merely that people should not be at each other's throats. But when God makes peace, He does something inwardly. He does something vital. He changes our hearts. So God's idea of peace is that people should embrace each other and love one another. That is Christian peace and really nothing less than that. So it's not just that he does away with the outward conflict. You begin to see uh, an attitude uh, where we're looking out for each other's interests. So it's not merely that we should not fight with each other, kids, but that we should love God and love one another, that there should be unity and oneness, that we really become one and love one another as we love them as we love ourselves. That's the work that God has done in the hearts of his people and Christ has produced that peace, and he has called us to walk in that peace. Amen? Let's, let's prayerfully just bow our heads and consider the word that was preached this morning before I close this in prayer. Please bow with me. Lord, we thank you, and we, we do desire, and we do want peace but we know that that peace only comes as we have peace with you, then you give us your peace. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, in our lives, in our households this week, uh, Lord, to, to see that peace manifested, to be able to walk in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, not to be in conflict with one another. And Lord, when we, when we mess up, when we sin against others, let us be quick to ask for your forgiveness and ask for their forgiveness as well. And Lord, I pray that that you would create in our church just this attitude and atmosphere of peace where there, if there are wrongs with one another, that we are would humbly go to one another and ask for forgiveness. Uh, Lord, we pray that your love would be abundant in our church. That God, that even so much so that people in the community would see the love of Christ. And we pray not only for our church, but other churches as well, that the name of Christ would be exalted in Andover and the surrounding communities. We thank you, O God, and pray these things in your name. Amen.